The New York Racing Association has let go its top official again amidst a cloud of scandal. Again. What does this mean for racing in New York and across the country? Plus, we haven't spent any time on this show this season yet talking about that Kentucky Derby thing. But now we've had our first big round of preps and it's time to set the table. Millie Ball of XBTV will do just that for us. It's in the gate and it's coming up next. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They race at And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hit-bombing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Boys or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Boys. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. It is one of, if not the most influential racing circuit in the United States. And once again, it faces tough questions about its future. Chris Kay stepped down as president and CEO of the New York Racing Association on January 23rd. It appears he used Naira employees to do construction on his private home in Saratoga. Now, there's really no disputing the improper behavior itself. The question is, what does this mean for the future of Naira? And since roughly one out of every four stakes races in the country takes place at a Naira track, what does this mean for racing in this country in general? There's a lot to go through here, and we're fortunate that our good friend Bobby Halt, who operates the New York Hot List Handicapping Service, monitors the pulse of New York racing all year round. And we welcome back Bobby Halt to win the gate for the first time this year. So let's start by orienting ourselves with the developments that happened while Chris Kay was in charge. He started in 2013. Naira went from being directly controlled by the state of New York to being semi-autonomous and the development of big event days like the Stars and Stripes Festival, a number of improvements to the ground at Saratoga, and even Aqueduct happened during his watch. So how would you characterize Naira under Chris Kay's leadership? Well, you do have to give Chris a lot of credit on certain levels. Like you said, certainly getting out of state control. Whoever takes over Naira now is looking at probably, like I think, I believe it'll be 28 years of, private control, which is an important thing for the organization going forward. He got the organization running in the black. They turned a profit for the first time in a decade. There were certainly a lot of good things that he that he did do. When you mentioned the big race days, I think that more fell into the, the auspices of uh, Martin Panza, who's senior vice president in charge of racing. Those were kind of his babies that he took care of. But again, Chris let him have the free reign to do those things. So there were some very positive things under Chris Kay. I think part of the problem with Chris came in in, in personality-wise, uh, which may have turned off some people and, and kind of maybe soured people onto what he did. But I think you do have to give him the credit for being there and getting Naira through a very, very difficult period. And certainly, I think they're well-positioned for the future. But uh, as I say, uh, certainly uh, Chris was a lightning rod for sure in terms of attention. Yet this is an organization whose leaders have consistently been caught up in scandal. I mean, Chris Kays was fairly cut and dried, but you have Anthony Bonomo, the then chairman of the board, who in 2015 took a leave of absence after getting caught up in a political scandal. 
Charles Hayward, who'd been president, left in 2012 when it was reported that Naira was taking too big a slice of the takeout from certain bets. And we could go on. There's more when it comes to disgraced leaders of this organization. What do you make of this pattern? You know, I think there's just different levels to it. Charlie made an innocent mistake. He just didn't handle it well in terms of when things came out. There wasn't an intention to do anything wrong on his part. I think he just didn't understand the situation fully and then just didn't react to it as well as he should have, which got him in the trouble that he got into. Anthony's problem was, yeah, that that was something totally outside of Naira, outside of the Racing Association, though the Racing Association should have been aware of some of this stuff and maybe not chosen him to be the president. With Chris, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, a lot of it comes down to you do have to wonder, why would you do this? And was this the only time it ever happened? Naira's really not being very forthcoming in what, what happened. They've never made any statement. The only news about it, that it was tied to him having worked on at his house in Saratoga, came from a report in the Daily Racing Forum. No one from Naira has commented on this. My own sources tell me, yes, that story is correct. There's also, though, some question, is there other, other, other things that prompted this? Because you do kind of have to wonder about the timing of this coming out right at a crucial juncture in Naira's history where you are about to renovate Belmont Park. You're going to maybe make a decision to change the meet at Saratoga. This really, everybody is saying this did not happen at an opportune time. Not that it ever does, but there's certainly a lot of question in that. And certainly there's been a lot of silence from Naira. So nobody really knows really the real, the real whole story. We'll get to those changes at Naira in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit more about the leadership of this organization. And we talked about Naira having been put under control of the New York state government in 2012 after the takeout scandal. The guy put in charge of the Naira board at that time was David Scorton, the president of Cornell University. He left in late 2014 to become secretary of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. He struck me as a principled man who, though he obviously had no real racing experience, brought a lot of credibility to the organization. What did you think of Mr. Scorton? I was not a big fan of him. Look, government control, I'm not a fan of government, be it Democrats, Republicans, centrists, whatever. I I just think government is, is so full of corruption itself that when government gets involved, I rarely think things get better. So the fact that this person was brought in by the governor, the governor Cuomo said, hey, you know what? I've got to do right by racing fans, and I've got to get somebody who's going to clean this thing up. I'm not sure. I, I didn't really hear that Mrs. Scorton knew much at all about racing. I don't even know if he knew much about his college because I remember asking him, seeing him and asking him a question because his, his hockey team, was playing in a very important college hockey team against, I believe it was Quinnipiac up when I was working for the New Haven Register, and I mentioned to him about the hockey game, and he was as clueless as can be. And it's like, wait, you're the president of the university. You don't know you're playing like the number one team in the country. So I'm not probably the one to, to, to really be asked about political appointees because I think that's really what they are. They're political appointees who were brought in for a specific reason, and it's not always the best thing for the fans. And Naira 
Snyder does not belong to the government. I bristle when people say that. It belongs to the fans who go to Belmont and Aqueduct and Saratoga. Being able to bet on a horse race, I don't think, is, is something where we need the permission of government and auspices of government. I'm maybe rambling here, but Scorton, I, I really, I, I don't really know much of what he did other than really just kind of echoed what marching orders he was given from Governor Cuomo. And I'm not sure if those were some great things, because I, I don't think Naira changed dramatically under, under things that uh, Governor Cuomo wanted them to do. We're talking with Bobby Halt of the New York Hot List Handicapping Service. Now, David O'Rourke, the senior vice president and chief revenue officer, is taking over on what's being called an interim basis. What rumblings are you hearing about a long-term successor to Chris Kay? I really haven't heard much. I think they're really more focused right now in getting through the immediate problem. In the course of the next few weeks, they have to map out what is the racing schedule going to look like at Naira for the rest of this year which was going to impact the next few years. You can't bring in a guy right now. So I, I, I do think they're going to give David a good long look. Not sure if he's going to be the, the president a year from now or how long. Uh, no one from Naira, as I say, Naira really has not been talking that much about it. Uh, the board of trustees right now is really focused on dealing with the problems of this year and, and the rest of this meet, as I say. We're going to find out shortly whether Saratoga is going to be a five-day race meet or a six this year, or maybe they'll change it next year. Is Belmont going to be open in the fall? I think they have to get through that. Once that, once they get through that, and I think certainly how David helps Naira navigate those waters, and he's coming into a very difficult position. This is not a job I think a lot of people would want right now where you have, okay, this is your baby he's in a tough position. And I do know from talking to Naira officials previous to this, keep asking them, when are you coming out with your stake schedule? The big response that I heard is they were waiting on Chris. They were waiting on Chris K. It was all waiting on Chris K. Now, maybe that played a role in what happened to him, that this uh, construction maybe is a little further behind. I don't know. That's just a conjecture. But uh, as I say, David O'Rourke's coming into a very difficult position. If Naira gets through this smoothly, I certainly think it's a feather in his cap, and uh, we'll see what uh, in what direction Naira decides to go. Now, when you say construction, are you are we talking about the arena and the shops, or are we talking about construction to the Belmont Park racetrack to make it year-round so they can sell aqueduct? Exactly. The, the construction. I mean, the Islanders, even the Islanders, I remember talking to John Ledecky the day in December of what year were we talking about? December 2017, when it was announced the Islanders were coming. John Ledecky said at that press conference, I said, when are you going to break ground? He said, oh, if it's up to me, we'll break ground tomorrow. They still haven't broken ground for the arena. They're probably not going to break ground, I hear, until maybe around May. Now, the whole idea of Naira, Naira's original game plan was, yes, they want to modernize Belmont Park. They do have to change. Some, the ground is going to be changed. Now, there's also talk some of these shops and restaurants, maybe instead of being in Belmont Park, in the grounds that is now Belmont Park, they'll be on the other side of Hempstead Avenue, out by where the parking lots are. Maybe some of the things will be out there now. So they're still going through. I don't think they really have everything completely in place yet on that. But yes, we are talking about modernizing Belmont. They're going to, the talk that I hear, they're going to modernize the main track. The turf courses in particular will be renovated. There is talk there's going to be a fourth racetrack 
that will be used for winter racing and that it will be a synthetic surface so that in the summer when it rains and you take a race off the turf, you could put it on that artificial track. So there's going to be substantial work to the grounds at Belmont Park in the structure of Belmont Park and the racing surfaces, and they have to be done. And certainly you would want those things completed by 2021 when the Islanders are open for business because you certainly don't want a complex that's under construction for six or seven years. Now, what does this leadership situation that we've been discussing mean for Naira's standing within the racing community, locally, nationally, and globally? New York has not had a Breeders' Cup since 2005, where much smaller venues like Del Mar and Keeneland are earmarked to have their second Breeders' Cups in the near future, all since New York's last one. I mean, there has to be a connection here between the instability of the leadership and not having a Breeders' Cup. Yes, I, I, that definitely plays a role in it. I'm not sure if it's so much the instability of the leadership, but the inst- there was the original problem dealing with the instability of the franchise. There was a question of who was going to be running the racetrack those four or five years down the road when the Breeders' Cup gets awarded. The Breeders' Cup certainly did not want to get into a certain situation where they're dealing with Naira on a Breeders' Cup, and then all of a sudden the track belongs to Churchill Downs or some outfit uh, Betfair in England. So that put them on the back burner. The second part of it is involving the winterization, that Belmont Park is a summer racetrack. It gets cold and windy, and it's a tough place to be at Belmont Park in that final week of October. The Breeders' Cup does want to compete in November. So the the Breeders' Cup was not happy about the thoughts of having to do it in October, which is already cold at Belmont Park, and then to do it in November is even colder. So certainly Naira was, again, put toward the back of the pecking order until they could finally get this question of modernizing the track, winterizing it a bit, so that there's areas where you can put a a good conglomeration of people where they'll be warm and protected in the winter or cold weather. And then I think the track will come back. But I I think it was a certain confluence of things that came. I I don't think the changes in the presidency really had as much of a question as the uh, franchise in terms of who ran it. Because I don't think any president is going to say, no, we don't want the Breeders' Cup. But certainly some organizations are harder or easier to deal with in terms of cutting deals with the Breeders' Cup. Let's end this on a happy note, okay? Bob Ahalt has been a world traveler lately. He's been at the Pegasus World Cup. He was at the Breeders' Cup. Let's not forget, Bobby Holt was also at Royal Ascot. I was there, too, though not with him. And he was at the Japan Cup. Arminai, the filly, in the blink of an Arminai, looms up to Kaseki. Christophe Lemaire hits the go button past the 200-meter mark. The filly strikes the front. It's going to be Arminai's Japan Cup. The filly makes history as she goes on and scores from Kiseki. And the filly has done it. The trainer's first, and it's a record 220.6. Whoa! What is it like to be in a jurisdiction that is in such a different part of the world? I truly enjoyed uh, the trip to Japan. And, and let me preface it. You mentioned Royal Ascot, where, uh, as I mentioned, I was there in top hat and tails because you need that to get into the paddock or to talk to the horsemen and such like that. But Japan was a totally different experience, but completely enjoyable on a different level. I mean, I do think Royal Ascot is something people need to experience. 
But I think it's more social. It's a social experience, and in, in, in to a large degree, it sure is. It is the royalty of horse racing. I mean, you're standing in the paddock at Royal Ascot, and you look over. There's Queen Elizabeth. There's Sheikh Mohammed. There's John Magnier. It's it's horse racing. People are having 250 pound, not even dollar, 250 pound lunches at a little table somewhere. It's very fashionable. It's upscale, and it's great racing. In Japan, this is a total gambling fest. You know, when I was there for the Japan Cup, it was close to 100,000 people, and they were all betting, looking over the programs, putting in wagers, rooting, buying the plushy dolls of the horses. Plushy dolls of the horses? Oh, yes. That's like the, uh, what is it, kitty? My, my kitty? I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on it, but the name of this stuffed animal that they have, and then they have a horse named Turfy as their mascot, and it's sort of like these stuffed animal toys that they have. But the fans are love it. The betting lines are huge. Everybody's reading and racing for it. It's a really fun horse racing experience. And in Japan, the culture, they are just so respectful and accommodating. And as I say, I think if you're a horse racing fan, I think you would love it out there. My only real complaint about Royal Ascot was they had six races. It was like by the time I barely got done with the work I had to do, the day was over. And it was like, come on, six races. Give me another three or four. In, in Ascot, they say, they, instead of giving you an extra two races, they sit around a band shell and sing for an hour. Sit around? There are no seats unless you're working media or you're in one of those luxury boxes. We had no seats whatsoever. That's true. No, you're right. Standing around the band shell. But I know there was a whole conglomeration, thousands of people around this band shell singing God Bless the Queen. And these songs going on for about an hour after the races. Whereas in Japan, they'll give you they'll give you like 12 races. They even have a break for lunch. After about the fourth race, they take a break for a half hour. Seriously? Yes, yes, they take a break. Two minutes before every race, the betting stops. That's it. No drag. Two minutes, it stops. No no Gulfstream Park, 20-minute drag to make sure you get every dollar <laughs> in the rainbow pitch stick. Two minutes before post, the betting closes. And then the gentleman in the fedora steps up. Uh, he walks by like this starter is a fellow in a fedora, and he walks out, and he, the people cheer for him like he's a rock star. And, and you know, you just get the feeling out there they really do love the horse. They love the horse racing. I, I, this is just totally my own opinion, but but I sort of thought that if I went around the racing the racetrack at Royal Ascot and asked people who is the favorite in the big race today, I wasn't sure how many people would answer. But when I went. For the Japan Cup, I'm sure if I did the same thing with people, everybody, I would get almost everybody telling me almond eye. So it, it, it's it's just a different experience, but but it is it is a great experience. I, I will I recommend it to people. It's not easy to get to Japan, but if you get the opportunity, I think it's really worth it. And as we mentioned, this almond eye looks like she's going to be a really good filly. We were, I want to see. I was kind of disappointed at how the Japanese filly ran in the Pegasus. I hope the same thing doesn't happen with almond eye. Surely this is a reason why you might not ever want to come back to New York racing after having experienced the Japan Cup. But thank you so much for sharing the perspective on these two very disparate racing jurisdictions, the one and only Bobby Hall. Thank you so much. Thank you. No problem. Always a pleasure, Barry. 
We haven't spent any time on this show this season yet talking about the Kentucky Derby. We're going to change that. Now that we've had our first big round of preps, XBTV's Millie Ball will be here to set the table for us when we come back. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. I know it's never too early to start talking about the Kentucky Derby, but really it's too early until we get past the first big round of preps in February. That's where we are now, so let's start talking. Here comes game winner on the outside. Mr. Money pops outside as well. There's one for long to go. And it's Knicks go in front. But game winner is thundering past the Twin Spires. They brush right inside the eighth pole. Now it's game winner in front. Knicks go battles on, but is back into second. Signalman is third. They're coming down to the finish. And game winner, a champion. And since the three potentially best candidates for the Kentucky Derby, maybe four, all reside in one barn in California, and I think we know whose barn to which we're referring, it's best to bring on someone who has seen these horses train every day. And it has been far too long since we welcomed Millie Ball of XBTV back to the show, XBTV being the in-house simulcasting arm of Santa Anita. So, Millie, you've seen these horses every day, what do you think of Game Winner, Improbable, Mucho Gusto, and even Coliseum from the barn of, you know who, Bob Baffert? I think the most challenging of the horses you mentioned, uh, Barry, is got to be the great horse Coliseum. He's pointing actually to the San Vicente, which is seven furlongs. And the reason I say Coliseum is because he, this horse is a runner. He wants to get it on in the morning. He wants to get it on in the afternoon. And it's, you know, I can see it's a challenge for Bob. He's really been trying to temper the horse, just just calm him down, just see if the horse mentally can get in the right zone that he needs to get to. And I think he's making baby steps, but I would like to have seen more of a, a, a positive result in the sham for him. Both he and Much Better actually were a little aggressive in that race and it cost them both late. So I think he, Coliseum, has a ton of natural ability, but it's mental for him. So running him in the San Vicente, I think, is, you know, is keeping him going the one turn and maybe seeing if, you know, they can go that route and, and you know, see how far that carries Coliseum. Now, even if Coliseum ends up as a sprinter and not a distance horse, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that unless you want to win the Kentucky Derby, Bob Baffert still has three potential really good candidates. There obviously aren't enough races in California for all of them. My guess is he will ship at least improbable out of town, but what are you hearing about that? Well, I haven't had any definitive uh, word from Bob, but I'm like you, I'm suspecting that with the owners being Gary and Mary West for game winner, they don't particularly like to ship horses. They prefer to stay home. And I think if that's the right thing to do for game winner, then I'm just predicting that he will stay here and run in the San Felipe on, on March 9th. He's uh, I've been watching him work in the mornings. He really did fill out in the time off between his Breeders' Cup Juvenile win and training now. I mean, he is, he is his neck thick, his shoulders, I and mean, everything about him is just powerful and strong. He looks fantastic. So I'm excited to see him run now as a newly turned three-year-old. The other horse, Improbable, 
is a dream to watch train in the morning. He is the most fluid, smooth, moving, efficient horse. He's just, he honestly is a pleasure to watch train. I saw him galloping on the off track and he's feeling good. And he was a little keener than I'd like to have seen for the first half mile when he ran in the Los Al security. But Drayden got, got him to settle after that. And then for him to finish as strong as he did, I mean, he was in full flight to the wire, running by his stablemate, Mucho Gusto, who just came back to win. Improbable remains third, but he is getting closer. Improbable now less than a length off the lead, and Dueling is guided into the four-path. He's in with a shot. It is wide open at the top of the stretch. Here comes Improbable to join the leaders. Improbable down the stand side, challenging stablemate Mucho Gusto, and he's taken over. Improbable to the outside of Mucho Gusto, who's trying to battle back to the inside, and the two Baffert trainees have pulled away from the others, but it's Improbable doing the best work improbable well on his way to remain undefeated and now a grade one winner fantastic in the futurity he won by almost five bob actually i was talking with him this morning and he said who do you like better game winner or improbable and i said right now i have to say improbable i feel like there is more that we haven't even seen from improbable we know how good game winner is and maybe with, you know, his, the experience that he's had and he's the four races under his belt and, you know, facing those types of horses in the Breeders' Cup, maybe he, you know, you'd have to say that off of paper he's better. But I just, the way that Improbable trains, I just feel like I would put him as the number one horse. You know it's Bob Baffert when you have multiple horses potentially on the Triple Crown Trail. That's pretty common. It's not as common when Ken McPeak has multiple good horses on the Triple Crown Trail, but he has a couple that could really make some waves, one of which is Signal Man, who won on uh, Thanksgiving weekend in the Kentucky Jockey Club, and Harvey Wallbanger, who at 25-1 to 1, came back to win the uh, Holy Bull. What do you make of these two horses? Well, I mean, Harvey Wallbanger, that, I mean, I... That was pretty impressive, wasn't it? What he was able to do um, in a short amount of time. I thought that was very impressive. Huge long shot, right? And did he deserve to be a long shot? I don't know. But he finished up fine. And it's hard for me to gauge those horses. Uh, For example, like Bill Mott's Hidden Scroll, you know, to gauge them. I don't know how well they were doing going into the races. Um, how high those trainers are on them. You know, word, like the word is out here. I'm, I'm hearing it in Southern California. So it's harder for me to gauge, you know, what to expect from those horses. But I mean, like a horse like Hidden Scroll, what he overcame in his first start. And the leader is Hidden Scroll. Hidden Scroll on top by three. Now Ranger Up is being driven by Johnny V, but he's better than nine lengths off the lead. And this horse, Hidden Scroll, is strong up front. Hidden Scroll and jockey Joel Rosario come off the turn with a seven-length lead. Bodie Express is clearly second with identifier on the outside, but look at the source up front, Hidden Scroll. Hidden Scroll now being asked to finish the job, but the job has been finished an eighth of a mile ago. Hidden Scroll turning heads and impressing in victory. He's wrapped up. Hidden Scroll, wow. He won by 10 or 12. Up the rail in the slop, that was very impressive. Dictating the tempo, settling, 
he checked all the boxes. So to me, as impressive as Kenny's horses have been right now, Hayden Scroll seems to be the one that has from the East Coast that has the most raw talent. I mean, he he found his rhythm really quickly. He came home under wraps in 12 and change. All those things you want to see from a from an early three-year-old. And now we're not so worried about having not raced as a two-year-old anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, that talks all out the window. But one who didn't race very much as a two-year-old, one more here from Millie Paul of XPTV, a horse I'm sure you have seen, but again, hard to gauge, and that is Instagrand, who ran twice as a two-year-old, and then his owner, Larry Best, just decided to put him on the shelf. No Breeders' Cup, nothing. He wouldn't want the horse overworked going into the Triple Crown. What do we make of him? Well, word is he's going to the San Felipe on March 9th. So I think we'll learn a lot more about him because I'm predicting here the game winner might show up there. And can you imagine the showdown between these two undefeated two-year-olds in their three-year-old debuts? Instagram is a beautiful horse and a super mover. I first saw him training um, actually really got a good chance to see him training when I was down in Del Mar this summer. And every time he posted a work as he was prepping for the best pal down there, it was just better and better. I mean, he is a super mover and a sweet horse, a really good mind on him. So he, I mean, you just don't know again, how good he is. He beat Sparkyville, who's you know, a nice horse with Jeff Bondy, but he's certainly not in this zone. Synthesis was in that race. So I, he, he hasn't faced much yet, but he, you know, the acid test will be if he and game winner face each other, obviously March 9th. But everything I've seen from him so far, I have liked as a now three-year-old. It's interesting you mentioned that because I was instantly reminded when you did about last year when Bolt Dioro and McKinsey faced each other for the first time. As three-year-olds, it was a knockdown, drag-out affair. And I said to myself, that kind of a race, particularly first off the bench, could be almost like Ali Frazier, where no, neither guy is the same after that. And I wonder if the same might be true if these two horses hook up. Well, uh, the one thing is we know is that Hollandoffer and Baffert have the experience. So I think, you know, if they do have a tough race, they're going to know how to manage those horses, I would imagine, with one more prep. I mean, Bob has been pretty clear that Improbable will probably only run twice as preps before the Derby, and I would imagine the same for Game Winner. So, you know, at least we know that these trainers will know how to handle it if they do have really tough races. But ideally, you don't want to have to have that type of a race, do you, going into the Derby under your belt? It's the same for the Breeders' Cup, too. You don't want to have to have that ultra-tough prep before you go into the Breeders' Cup. We do know that Game Winner is a fighter. He loves to fight. And, you know, Bob's been facing his work back here, partly because of the weather that we've had um, and the off-track but I think he, he's making sure that he doesn't squeeze the lemon at all <laughs> until he gets to the first race. I think this is a horse that he knows, you know, he, he's a fighter. Um, he knows how to get him fit enough to win these races. So 
I think he's you know, taking it quite easy with him, knowing that there's still a long way to go for the first Saturday in May. We are under 90 days until the leg oh. one of the Triple Crown. It's nice to be back on the trail, especially with Millie Ball. Thank you so, so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It was nice to chat with you. Our thanks to Millie Ball and to Bobby Halt. If you watched the Super Bowl broadcast, you saw a clever ad that combined a beer and an upcoming TV show. Each brand had a different ad agency, so they had to work together, and the result was well above the status quo. Partnerships like that are allowed in horse racing. Sometimes a syndicate is a type of group ownership. But what if trainers pooled their expertise and resources and jointly prepared their horses for their trips? Now, only in Australia can you have such an arrangement. Elsewhere, one trainer would have to give up the right to hold a license. Just one pays bills and shoulders liability, but sharing it all would let smaller trainers fight. It might allow these little guys to compete against Todd Pletcher and the other super trainers of today, who have strings of horses in multiple states and crowd the smaller guys out. Joining forces to compete might be the way. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.